Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, March the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. He'll be the voice on the other end when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Just a... A friendly reminder, if you'd like to support the Kenny's Pond Kings minor hockey team, they're involved in the Chevrolet Good Deeds Cup again this year. Three days left to vote. All you have to do is go to ChevroletGoodDeedsCup.ca, find the Kenny's Pond Kings, give them a vote. They're trying to bring home $100,000 in support for the Association for New Canadians. Now, on that front, terrible news for the Association... So they woke up to find that their 24-passenger van has been stolen. They found it damaged on Torbay Road. Another minivan stolen. The other vehicles in the lot damaged. So I don't know how targeted this might have been. But the association to deliver their programs and services rely on those vehicles. So this is a terrible thing to have happened to them. They shuttle some 400 to 600 students around every single day in these vehicles. So hopefully they can get back on track ASAP. And if you know anything about the dirty nuisances that did this, you can probably inform the RNC. But vote for the Kenny's Pond Kings. That $100,000 go a long way for the Association for New Canadians. Also, a quick check-in at the Junior Curling Nationals in Stratford, Ontario. Team Young, 7-1. and one, Off to the playoffs, looking good. There's a video kicking around on social media with uh, skipper Nathan Young and his triple takeout in the ninth end to get a win over Ontario yesterday. Incredible shot. Also, Team O'Leary had a good experience at the Junior Nationals. They finished the round robin 1-7, and seven, but some of their social media content is really quite positive they had a good time at the curling nationals and of course when you get to play on the big stage it's always a good thing and on the women's side team uh, kenzie mitchells finished the round robin at four and three not so long ago we were talking about our very own liam hickey at the para games in uh, beijing we know that the canadian olympic uh, association they have pots of money dangled in front of the olympians if and when they finish on the podium twenty five thousand dollars for a gold fifteen thousand dollars for a silver ten thousand dollars for a bronze medal for the paralympian paralympians nothing now we know there are two different associations with different pots of money available but this is an encouraging piece of business right here there's a fellow named sanjay malavi malavi i think that's how you pronounce it i apologize uh, to mr malavi if i'm butchering that one. He's a Canadian businessman. He made a donation of $1.2 million directly to support Team Canada's Olympic and Paralympic Tokyo and Beijing medalists. $5,000 per medal. Bravo to you, sir. So 130 Olympians and 53 Paralympians are going to get a grant through this donation. That is an excellent piece of business by this Canadian entrepreneur and businessman. Bravo to you. And we see in the curling world once again, Team Guzhu have landed in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Trying to wrap up what has been an extraordinary year. So after Team Canada uh, skipped by Kerry Einerson at the Worlds on the women's side, winning a bronze medal, Guzhu with his Olympic bronze medal, his fourth briar, off to the Worlds again. Certainly one of the teams to keep an eye on. And we wish Brad and the boys nothing but the very best of luck. All right, so fuel updates. Thursday generally the day, right? So gas is down 1.1 cents. That will be taken away tomorrow on the 1st of April when we see the additional two cents of the federal carbon tax kick in at the pumps. 
Price of diesel is up. Diesel's up 2.7 cents on the island, 6.7 cents in Labrador. But this is the concern that I think most people focus in on is furnace oil. Furnace oil up of uh, 5.2 cents per liter. It has risen astronomically in the last couple of years. And so that's going to be the concern that the federal government, or pardon me, the provincial government, even when they talk about their five-point plan to aid folks, the issue surrounding furnace oil, and it's not necessarily on the company. It's the price of gas, absolutely. There's a, a distinct issue surrounding the amount of profitability for those companies that remains in place. Huge numbers, as you are all painfully aware. But there are some of the updates. Propane's also up to 1.6 cents. And just where does it end? All right. Some encouraging news. Now, we've known for a long time that we have a wealth of natural resources, including minerals. And when we talk about things like electric vehicles and the electrification, and I know some people, the electric vehicle might not be for everybody, depending on where you live and your driving habits and the distance that you need to drive for work or to commute or whatever. So I get it. You know, it's remarkable to me that I get so many emails saying, why are you talking about that? You know, it's electric vehicles aren't to be all and end all. It doesn't work for me. Okay, if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. And, of course, with the growing popularity of, and even if you follow along with some of the federal government's greenhouse gas emissions plan and what they talk about with three in regards to internal combustion engines, you know, 60%, they want to be in the market by 2030, and by 2035, they're looking about 100%, and no longer going to be able to buy, so say the federal liberals, and if that comes to pass, then will remains to be seen. But that does indeed create opportunities for this province, especially in the mineral sector. So we know we have a certain amount of copper, cobalt, that can be indeed a nickel that can be mined. And now apparently there's been a deal struck, no formal announcement as of yet, but between Valet, a Swedish company, and Northvolt, also a Swedish company, their battery manufacturer. They've struck a deal for this province of Voices Bay to supply nickel to their operations. At this moment, Valet says that they produce some 5% of the nickel already goes to these electric battery manufacturers. They're talking about increasing that production to 30 to 40%. So this is good news. And this is where, when the world changes, and hopefully we have the ability to change with it, on time as opposed to chasing from behind which has really plagued us in the past so when we talk about some other jobs that might be in a precarious position and the volatility associated with it maybe just maybe there's some bright sides of the economy that we could focus on a little bit more than some of the doldrums and the doom and gloom that is real and the pressures on people are absolutely real but this might be a big opportunity for us you know add into some of the rare earth minerals that we have in labrador in particular the gold mines that are expanding leaps and bounds here on the island the mining sector is going to be important now i know there's nothing absolutely pure environmentally speaking regarding the extraction of natural resources that's absolutely true life cycle stuff absolutely true but that's an exciting deal that you know you might see uh, minerals from this province in Volkswagens, BMWs, and yes, Teslas. So I heard Brian Medor in the newscast say that Elon Musk would put out some sort of tweet. A uh, minister responsible for the energy sector, Andrew Parsons, replied to it. I don't know what role government has played in brokering this deal, but certainly this is a piece of good news when we need it the most. So Northvolt, in partnership with via Volkswagen, BMW, Tesla, going to be supplying some nickel from this province. Absolutely good stuff right there. And on the federal emissions plan, 
You know, I don't know what's going to happen here with Baylor Nord. I have no earthly idea. But when you read between the lines in the greenhouse gas emissions plan that was released a couple of days ago by the federal government, referencing low emissions for uh, oil production, we're in a good spot here. We probably should be encouraged by that plan. I've been told via email overnight that I'm absolutely out to launch. It's not going ahead. The liberals hate oil. You know, all the rhetoric that we hear all the time. But there is some reasons to be encouraged. Equinor is proceeding. They're bringing over the West Hercules uh, oil, deep water oil drilling rig from Norway. It's on its way to CBS at this moment in time. It's going to be out doing some exploration work at Sitka and the Cambriol Central out in the Baylor Nord Flemish Pass development that Equinor is looking at. So they seem to be still on track and they're going to proceed as if they have an opportunity to get a green light from the federal government. And yes, it, in regards to the Atlantic Accord, and the fundamental decisions that can indeed be addressed by the province, even though uncertainty if there's a red light or a rejection coming from the feds makes it particularly prickly for Equinor and the province. But there you go. You want to talk about it? Let's do it. I see Dr. Susan McDonald, the president of the NLMA, in the news talking about surgical backlogs once again. And just in the metro region, some 6,000 procedures that have been delayed. One important note is, you know, when we make a reference to something that's called an elective surgery, it's a curious phrase to throw around when we're talking about surgical procedures. It doesn't mean that they're not necessary. Elective simply refers to the fact that they will pick a date for the surgery as opposed to an emergency, immediate surgical procedure that has to be conducted. So when the federal government puts forward some $2 billion to help the province deal with the backlogs, Dr. McDonald is right on point by saying this doesn't deal with any long-standing issues pre-pandemic. You can't just build an operating theater if you don't have the healthcare professionals required, whether it be surgical nurses, the surgeons themselves, post-operative nurses, some 600 vacancies in the nursing profession here in the province at this moment in time. So no sense building an operating theater if it's going to remain empty. So the real pragmatic question that I'm not even sure anyone's got an answer to is what do you even spend this money on? And yes, of course, the frontline professionals need to be consulted with the best place to spend this money, but how does money deal with the backlog? I'm just not really sure what that means. And if you know more than me, and maybe a day today, if Susan McDonald, Dr. McDonald has some time, she can join us to elaborate on how exactly we're supposed to proceed with a significant pot of money, 27 million, but how you spend it to deal with the issue, I'm not really sure if you know more about it. Please do indeed contact us here today. All right, some of the backlog absolutely caused by COVID, of course. Another contributing factor was the cyber attack at the Meditech IT system, the brain of the data center. We hadn't had an update since, since December, and we got one yesterday, albeit not much more information, other than the fact that it's worse than we thought. Some 200,000 files have been compromised. And it goes all the way back to 1996. We thought at one point that it was all the way back to 2008. Not so much. 1996. They don't think that there's been any data sold and individuals have been compromised, financially speaking. Identity has been stolen. But that doesn't mean it hasn't happened, as far as I know. They've offered some protection for uh, through Equinex, Equinex, Equifax and others. But... People are not pleased with the lack of transparency on this issue. So as it pertains to who did it, whether or not there was a ransom requested or demanded, 
whether or not there was a ransom paid. The minister responsible says, given advice from their lawyers, national security issues, international security issues, they've declined to offer any of that information. Okay. In some regard, I kind of get it. I mean, other jurisdictions, the experts in the field regarding cyber attacks have said, don't disclose that information. Now, if that adds to additional vulnerability for others who may indeed try to the same hijinks as we've rebuilt the system to, uh, and a price tag on it, we don't know. But even if we were told that information, what do we do with it? You know, what exactly do we do with that piece of info, whether or not we know who did it? Let's say it was the Russians or the North Koreans or the Chinese or whoever. Okay, so if you get that, then what? Whether or not there was a ransom demanded and paid, if we understood that information, what do we do with it? I don't really know. So obviously the lawyers are calling the shots on this particular one, but that's the update that we've got from the minister and Mr. Diamond from Eastern Health yesterday. 200,000 files were taken from Eastern Health alone. Anyway, yeah. I get the frustration with not answering the questions. And you know, it does come across not it doesn't smell or feel right or great or transparent or accountable when the minister simply says, I'm not answering that question. I know why he's not answering that question, but what's the purpose of these news conferences or pressers if we're just told the things were worse than we thought, extended further back in time than we thought, but we're not getting any more information other than the fact that 200,000 of these files in Eastern Health alone have been compromised. Okay, and again, for the purpose of information, and I think people are asking pretty big questions here about what today looks like and what the future looks like regarding the ongoing issue, which is the pandemic. It's not gone away as much as we're all sick of it. So the numbers are in the troubling range. They simply are. You know, if you talk about surgical backlogs, then certainly COVID and hospitalizations, pardon me, regarding COVID are part of the problem. There are still 40 people in the hospital. And yesterday when the hub was updated, some seven additional deaths. All right. There's been one person die every day in 2022. Yesterday was the the 90th day, and 91 deaths have been reported already this year. So I don't know how that affects your day-to-day behaviors and routines and what you're willing or wanting to do. 920 additional cases, even though we all know you can probably times that by 5 or 10. Who knows? But is there any appetite? Look, I still see a lot of people wearing a mask. And, you know, people will continually tell me that the masks are completely useless. Well, that's not really true. If you look at what's happened across the country, we'll say, just take our country. When the masks go on, the cases stabilize or go down. When the masks come come off, the cases go up. It's simply been the case. It's just the fact of the matter. Whether it's because when people were mandated to wear the mask, they were much more attentive to all of the public health protocols, and there's not one thing that's been the be-all and end-all. You know, the physical distancing and the mask and the washing your hands and covering your coughs and sneezes and the vaccination rates has been important. And even when people reference the fact that someone has died every single day of the calendar year, in comparison to other provinces throughout this and currently, we're still in a pretty good place, but the numbers are starting to worry many, many people out there. And I get it. If you're tired of the restrictions, you hated the mask, you didn't like anything about any of the capacity issues and what people refer to as a lockdown, even though there was very little time spent in lockdown in this province, the numbers are part of some of the ongoing healthcare concerns. So again, not for fearful, not to stoke the fire, simply for your information, we can do it. All right, they're also sending out more rapid tests, and there's big conversations about rapid tests, as you know. 
but they're changing, and this has been coming, and it's been happening in other jurisdictions, other jurisdictions, jurisdictions. Man, I'm tongue-tied here this morning. Okay. So you want to talk about the inability to get a rapid test if you can't afford it. But in the K-12 system, they're restocking the shelves in the schools, and the students are being sent home with the rapid test again. Then they go on to try to cover their tracks a little bit by saying they're encouraging these students and families to share their tests with others who might need a test and possibly can't afford it. All right. Now they're changing the protocols for how you're supposed to apply the test. So it's not just a matter of uh, scraping your cheeks anymore. You have to go ahead and swab your throat, cheeks, and nose. Hopefully people will do it because the opportunity to pick up the virus and to ensure that you're getting an accurate result from your test is important. And that's the protocols that are now being asked of the student body from the K-12 system right across the province. All right. How are we doing out there on the phone this morning, Dave? Let's get her going. All right, let's get to the tunes. Oh, the Bank of Canada, it looks like experts in the field are saying that there's going to be probably six hikes this year, maybe not the 25 points, but maybe 50 points at a time, maybe getting us a 3.75% as the benchmark rate by the end of the year. Inflation at a 30-year high at 5.7%, so we know that something has to give. But you add in the servicing our own individual debt to the soaring prices of everything that we see, touch, and feel, it becomes even more difficult for the normal Joe and Jane out there. All right. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's get a tune on the go. This is a beauty. So a couple of quick music notes. It was today in 1949 that the 45 RPM record was first introduced by RCA Victor. That's only one year after the LP was introduced by Columbia. They were better sound and quality, of course, than the records that were played in the past. So that's an interesting note. But let's get the tune. It was today in 19. 58 that the legend Chuck Berry released Johnny Be Good. When we come back, be good or bad, it's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Jerry, you're on the air. Uh, yes, I was uh, I was wondering, uh, uh, the government is trying to push these uh, electric cars, vehicles, but mm-hmm. uh, I was wondering uh, how many ve- electric vehicles the government got in their fleet and if the members are driving them. I don't know if, well, I did see in one of the members' parking spaces at Confederation building an electric vehicle, uh, but I don't know who it belonged to. I can't remember what the uh, placard said on the on the space, but it's a good question. So governments, I think, are probably going to have to and be forced to, if they're going to talk the talk, they're going to have to walk the walk. So when they start to replace aging fleet, I would imagine they're going to have to look at electric vehicles. It's like we always say, leadership has to be done in full view. You can't just tell us or encourage us or demand that we do one thing and not do it yourself. So that's a good question, Jerry. Uh, yes, uh well, I'm a first-time caller, so I'm a little bit nervous. So, that, I think you put a, a good question out to start the program this morning. So what do you think? Like, what is, What's your thought on the world of electric vehicles anyway? Is it something you're interested in? Do you have any sort of dissenting view? Because they're becoming more and more popular. And if you look at the federal government's plan, they're trying to push the fact that by 2035, you won't be able to buy a new internal combustion engine vehicle. So we're on a fast track by the look of it. Well, they're... they're uh they're going to have to, to make a lot of changes to convince me because uh, I live here on the Bjorn Peninsula now, and I'm not going to be caught on the Bjorn Peninsula Highway in January in an electric vehicle. Yeah, I mean, the current infrastructure that's in place absolutely is not adequate if we're talking about more and more people to the volume that the federal government is talking about getting electric vehicles. So you're right. Until they build what we need to service electric vehicles, to charge them without having to go to the extent of your range from 350 kilometers 
But as we change and as they become more and more popular, it just stands to reason for me that there'll be more infrastructure in place to accommodate the people who use electric vehicles. So absolutely. Today, the numbers of people that have them, they've got the infrastructure they need. If we see by 2035, if the federal liberals have their way, they're going to have to do much more. Now, inside their plan, there was $400 million for 50,000 additional fast charging stations. But that's just the beginning, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, well uh, I mean, uh, you can imagine what the Bureau of Municipal Highway is like in a storm. Now, in the wintertime, you could be uh, parked on the, the highway there for three or four hours. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you can, if you're just talking about heating a vehicle as you wait for the storm to pass or for the plow to pass you, uh, for most of these electric vehicles, you can get up to 60 hours of heating. So there's still some protections uh, afforded to folks in those circumstances. A lady yesterday also called about the safety of an electric vehicle without anything in the front of the vehicle, like a big engine to, uh, to uh, take some of the impact. Someone sent me a link, and they have proven to be very safe. The structural integrity is there. So being stuck or being in a, in a collision, they've been considered, and they're already built into the electric vehicles that are on the road today. Very good. Good to have you on the show as a first-time caller, Jerry. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to like, uh, line one. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'd like to... Uh Tell the people they're going to build around that stuff and the people in Newfoundland have wasted the money by the Marine Department. They're keeping doing it and at it every day. Like on the weekend there now, they tied up Legionnaire. Uh, they called a man in who was off shift and he's casual, and he asked him to come in, and he said, no, well, he wants overtime. Anyway, instead of going before the union that with it or appealing it or whatever, if he wanted it, they decided that... No, rather than paying him uh, 32 hour, uh, 21 hours at $32 an hour, $700, they decided to tie up the Legionnaire, put on enhanced runs. They were putting out overtime at 100 hours a day. And, you know, inconvenience to the people and that and everything else. And then there was the hotel bills and meals and everything for those people, wasting a big pile of money for basically nothing uh, just because they get their nose up and uh, they're treating the casuals differently than the permanent staff. Like if a, if a, a relief goes on, temporary relief goes on, and he got to do a double shift, they won't pay them overtime for doing a double shift, doubling back. As a matter of fact, they're now, I think there's one fellow there now, five or six weeks, getting all regular time because he's casual. So, anyway, like I said, this was a big waste of money, a bad decision by them, and they don't worry about money. Now, again, they, uh, there's a company on the mainland that designed the electronic, uh, electronic safety and that stuff on board the boats, the, the safety panels and that. Anyway, they got a problem, a serious safety problem on board the new, new bills. So they called him to come down or whatever to fix it. So he called a local contractor that we've done business with for 20, 30 years and done many projects together. So anyway, uh, he said, yes, he'd go on board the boats and check out the problems. The company on the mainland called the superintendent or whoever, I'm not sure who it was, but anyway, they told him, no, we want you to come down. They're trying to get there now to take the Newfoundland companies out and bring in all 
OEM manufacturers and that stuff, uh, original equipment manufacturers, to do all the repair work on board the boats, which involves, uh, you know, a lot of overtime, travel expenses, hotel rooms, you name it, all for nothing when we've got local people here to do the work. And the minister and the premier are talking about, oh, keeping Newfoundland companies employed and giving the work to Newfoundlanders and that stuff. They're saying one thing and preaching about it, but the people in government are doing the complete opposite as regards to, you know, giving, giving the Newfoundland work to the Newfoundlanders who are quite capable and qualified to do it. And uh, like, like I said, all of this money is going out, and if they continue to do it, uh, what and why and that and whatever, I don't know. But for some reason or other, they're just wasting millions and millions of dollars. You got this uh, soundings and public accounts committee. They're now doing studies and that stuff and doing meetings and doing everything. And all they are is just members of the Mutual Admiration Society. One person is going around complimenting the other, and that's all they're doing. And none of them knows anything about the marine business or the marine industry. Just let me get this straight, though, Mike. Most of the calls, you're saying that we have people who don't know what they're doing inside of the ferry operations and wasting money on repairs and local companies that have been hired and engineers that don't know what they're doing. But then they bring in original equipment manufacturer. Just let me finish. Then they bring in original equipment manufacturer repair people to do it right, but that's also a problem. So what's the right path here? Either we were doing it wrong in the past and now we're doing it wrong again when we bring in a mechanic who's absolutely intimately familiar with equipment we're not doing it wrong here uh it's basically just a practice of the the management there and it's not the engineers don't know what they're doing it's the people that are don't got nothing to do with the ferries actually they're scheduling the ferries and now they want to run the whole show as regards to the refit and the repairs and are overruling the engineers and and the captains and, and the crews they're the bosses right now an engineer is not allowed to make any decisions he got a call the superintendent or somebody somebody over him ashore that knows nothing about the marine industry and they calls in the repair people. The chief engineer and them are not allowed to say anything or they're fired. And this is where it all stems to. It's not the people on board the boats, it's not the ferries themselves as much. But we're in for some big repairs on those uh, new ferries that people don't realize that was overlooked during construction. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that's still there that is not up to code or up to standards, up to Transport Canada regulations. Such as? Uh, the emergency generator. Okay. They got, a, they got a salt water pump right next to a switchboard, emergency switchboard. That is the room for the emergency generator is a, as a dedicated room. You're not allowed to store anything in there, put anything else in there other than the emergency generator and switchboard. And then we got the cooling system on the, the switchboard. Uh, the cooling motor for the, for the engine is only a tunnel that was made up for uh, engine room airflow. And they made it up, made it up an adapter plate that's to stick it onto the radiator. Now the motor is being overloaded and everything else that it won't run properly. The electrical cabinet's got uh, stuff stored on top of them that are not sealed up that the reactors and that and stuff and the drives and everything underneath the sparks can come out of something else up on top something fall down on top of it so the, so for the sake of a small repair now you've got a major repair and uh, there's a lot more like 
even the design of the toilets, when the, when the toilets were designed, I think you got one vessel change now. When one toilet go down, they'd all go down. So that you had to do repairs, you'd get repairs done right away. Uh, the cafeteria is designed for 200 people. And there's only the crews used it. Why? They bought the appliances there that are made in Europe that are different sizes. You cannot get the parts here, or if you can get them, there's a long delay in getting them and that and everything else. You can't repair it. Long times repairs. And if you got to change it, you got to cut out stainless steel cabinets and that stuff. And uh, then there's the now, they bought the engines, the engines and the, uh, the turbochargers. Not designed for here for usage or anything else that are beating themselves to pieces. I think half the time they're out of commission due to not being worked on, not working properly. And uh, what else off the top of my head? Oh, the, the scrubbers. The engines were not, they never thought about the new rules and regulations in Canada with regards to pollution and the emissions from the engines. Now, in order to keep the engines up to the emission standards, they're going to have to install scrubbers. Scrubbers are very expensive, very large, nowhere to sell them, and it's going to cost millions to to bring it up to code. Like these boats, uh, design, we're talking about state of the art. The only thing state of the art on these vessels is the touch pads. The rest of it is uh, by far not state of the art. Now, they're nice looking vessels and good and that stuff, whatever, but. The problem that we had, we never had anybody in government to properly oversee it and see the design and look at make sure the inspections were done properly and everything else. There was nothing okay. done right in the building of these boats. Well, even just the selection of the shipyard that built them was a, a misstep all right out of the gate. I appreciate the time. I've got to get off to the break. Anything else very quickly? Uh, no, that's about it. The, the only thing is, is that, as far as I'm concerned, the minister... And the premier should get in on it because they're preaching one thing. But in actual fact, uh, the employees underneath them and that stuff are doing it different. So is it the fault of the uh, they're, they're not being informed by the people underneath or what's going on there? But there's a miscommunication there somewhere in between of what's going on. And uh, we need somebody to step in, but nobody will step in. And all they're doing is going around, having all these meetings and everything else, going around, talking about the other one of how good a job each one is doing. A lot of meetings go on in government that achieve very little. Uh, Mike, appreciate your time. Thanks for the call this morning. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Will I get the dog uh, call quick before we go to the break? Let's go to line number two. Rhonda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for taking Well, um, just talking about my dog, Roxy, uh, on Seaboard Street. That is uh, Thorburn Road, right next to Mansfire Road, and Tim Hortons up from the Avon Mall. Um, She got out the first time in 12 years. The fence I built, the gate was opened. (laughs) It survived Igor, but it was open this morning. So the dog got out. She's a medium-sized dog. She's mostly black with a big white chest, and she has a white tip on her tail. She is a darling. Her name is Roxy. She was picked up, uh, she's only out for about 10 minutes, ramping around Seaborn Street, having a time, and some lovely lady in a blue car, I'm told by a neighbor, picked Roxy up, so she's in a blue car with a lady. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Somewhere out there. <laughs> and she was picked up on Bainbridge Street, 
in the Seaboard Street neighborhood here. So uh, I'd love to get her home safe and sound. And um, while she's with this lady, enjoy my lovely dog while you have her because the whole city knows her and loves her. <laughs> I, I assume that the lady picked up the stray dog yeah. to protect it versus to take oh, it. So, so this lady and in the blue car. Yeah, okay. Yeah, she's in my neighborhood, so she probably recognizes me and Roxy. So. <laughs> Well, let's see if Roxy gets home. So what do you want to do here? You yeah. want to ask the lady in um, the blue car to call us, call you? What, what would yeah, you like to do? Yeah, yeah. You can leave her my phone number. Okay. Um, I believe it's with your station. Yeah, um, we have one it. Of your, one of your awesome colleagues um, is tweeting it and putting it out on Twitter. And I'm going to call the Humane Society and see if she's up at doggy jail and bust her out if she's up there, hopefully. <laughs> good luck with her, Rhonda. Fingers crossed. Thank you so much, guys. Keep you, up the good work. Thanks. You too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about today is actually the 40th anniversary, or maybe it's today, the 40th anniversary of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms here in the country. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. And just quickly, we just had a call from Rhonda. The dog got out. Apparently, that pup is at the Humane Society. It was posted on Facebook. So, Rhonda, you've heard it here, and you're going to be able to get, what was the dog's name, Roxy? Yeah, Roxy. Okay. Let's go line number four. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Top shelf. How about you? Uh, pretty good, thanks. Good. I want to talk about the uh, upcoming 40th anniversary of the enactment of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms next month. Absolutely. Let's go. Uh, probably the most important document in the country. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the Charter uh, forms part of our Constitution, and the Constitution is the supreme law of this country. So it's, uh, you're absolutely right. It's kind of important. And, uh, you know, as Canadian citizens, uh, we have these rights. Uh, which are varied uh, from the right to vote, uh, mobility rights to uh, take up residence and f- gain employment in any province or territory. But uh, especially, uh, and they're all important, uh, all the rights that are enumerated in the Charter, but uh, especially uh, the rights in criminal and penal matters uh, in the Charter. Yeah, freedom of conscience, religion, thought, belief, expression, assembly, the press. I mean, there's yep. lots of enshrined inside the Charter. But what's really become, uh, I don't know what the right label is, a frustrating conversation surrounding the Charter in the last number of years is the accusation that it's been completely trampled on. When I think if we're being realistic and we're being honest about what the Charter protects and the rights that are not absolute and there's all kinds of exemptions that can be applied, people think that it's been torn up and burnt and it's no longer applicable in Canadian life when I just don't think that's the case. You? No, you're, you're, you're right. It's, uh, you have your rights that are set out in the Charter, but uh, Section 1 of the Charter uh, prescribes limits, justifiable limits on those rights in certain situations, right? Well, for all the obvious reasons. Um, yep. And I get it. You know, people will talk about freedom. And like we even had a caller yesterday who referenced the fact that a certain piece of legislation, what is being referred to as the censorship bill by the Conservative Party of Canada, is that we'll have no freedoms left. We've been very quick to go down that path of declaring that we've lost all of these liberties and freedoms when, you know, even as it pertains to the protests in Ottawa. You know, for dictatorship with that Rachel Thomas lady, uh, this Conservative member, you know, Trudeau's a dictator and what have you. I mean, we've just got to be careful that when we have especially elected parliamentarians that talk like that, that really does foster the people out there who are 
holding the extreme views and using them to try to make a political point. It's not even hyperbole. Some of it's just absolute nonsense. I'm a little, I know the shine has rubbed off Justin Trudeau. Absolutely right. And there's probably time for change in this country. But we have to be careful to be rational and reasonable when we talk about what's actually happening in the world versus go all the way to dictator and tyranny and stuff. Look, Stephen Harper wasn't a dictator. Justin Trudeau isn't a dictator. Far and away, the definition of it and the realistic association of dictatorship is it's taken force by power or taken power by force as opposed to duly elected six months ago. And if you protest in the uh, Red Square in Moscow, as soon as you hold up your sign, you're detained, you're disappeared versus a month in the capital city of the country. So we've just got to be careful how we deal with these uh, conversations and be, be realistic regardless of what political ideology you hold. Oh, absolutely. And people throw around the uh, the words or the phrase that, uh, you know, uh, the government is trampling on my rights or my rights are being taken away from me. When, in fact, in certain situations, you may not even have a certain right that, that you're saying is being t- taken away from you. Or uh, you, may, you may be uh, misunderstanding uh, how constitutional rights work. Uh, constitutional rights work to pr- pr- protect you from the power of the state. And state action. It doesn't work against private actors or private interests. So when I hear people uh, uh, say that, oh, you know, I've been banned from Twitter uh, because my, uh, you know, my my uh, Twitter feed, uh, I'm too uh, acerbic or I'm too uh, controversial on the Twitter, shut me down. They're violating my right to uh, free speech. That's not true, because Twitter is a private company, and if they decide they don't want you on their platform, that's up to them. Twitter's not a state actor, right? Yeah, we, we jumbled up a lot of issues. And these are important conversations. I'm not dismissing the fact that we should be absolutely vigilant in ensuring that our actual freedoms enshrined in the Charter, the liberties associated with the Constitution, are protected at all costs. But there's a certain type of messaging that really, I think, betrays the conversation. We get nowhere fast when we go down the certain paths that some people are using. Look, if you're sick of Justin Trudeau, fine. <laughs> you know, no, no sweat off my back, but the conversations have taken on an air that is just unbelievable, you know, and extremely frustrating and counterproductive, especially if you're trying to ensure that rights are protected by misusing or mischaracterizing anything surrounding these important rights, then the conversation gets derailed. It's the same thing when we talk about something like, say, uh, immigration. If someone has a question about immigration and they're automatically labeled a racist, the conversation stops before it begins, and that's just not good enough. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, with regard to the government in power, if you don't like that government... You will get a uh, an opportunity to go to the ballot box and mark your X and vote that government out of power, which is another charter right that you have. And, uh, you know, we're lucky if we get 50 percent of the population to go to the polls when we do have the elections, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I just don't get it. If you, if you disagree with the government and what the government is doing, vote them out of vote them out of office. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of very serious uh, things, you know, recently that have happened with the tr- with the trucker convoy in Ottawa and other places across the country. Um, where your where your charter rights are front and center, and uh, if you're making the claim that your charter rights are being infringed upon, and that may very well be the case, but it may be a justifiable infringement under Section One, and the Supreme Court of Canada uh, set out the criteria in a 1986 uh, case, uh, the Queen versus Oaks, uh, for the set out the criteria for uh, determining whether there's a justifiable limit on your constitutional rights. So there is uh, jurisprudence from the Supreme Court of Canada on just when. The government can put uh, limitations on your rights and what the what the circumstances are, right? And we have um, uh, two two situations uh, with the with the current government. 
that I can think of uh, involving Section 8, the uh, unreasonable search and seizure provisions of the Charter, whereby I think there's very good cases uh, that are won in their way through the court system, uh, one uh, regarding uh, breaches of Section 8 or potential infringements. Uh, one is the uh, random, uh, random roadside breath tests that uh, any uh, motorist has to take across the country. Now the police can stop you and demand a, ro a, a random roadside breath test for the test for the presence of alcohol. And uh, that, that automatically attracts charter scrutiny because that's an unreasonable search and seizure, p potentially. And the other one is the, tr is the trucker convoy where the federal government ordered the banks to um, unilaterally freeze the uh, bank accounts and financial assets of, of Cana some Canadians, right? Yeah, and, you know... It's also important to note that every piece of legislation has to go through a rigorous test associated with the Charter. So, you know, even with the so-called censorship bill, I think it's Bill C-11 that uh, we're talking about here, uh, privacy, consumer privacy protection, you know, every piece of legislation does indeed have to pass a test regarding the, the Charter. So it's an all-encompassing, important document that we're soon to celebrate its 40th anniversary. I appreciate the call this morning, Colin. Anything else before we go? You know, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the test of whether uh, legislation that's passed by the federal government, or any government for that matter, uh, pass, uh, passes constitutional musters rests with the courts. The courts are the guardians of the Constitution. Yep. They're the third branch of government, and we have independent, uh, impartial uh, uh, tribunals and courts and uh, administrative bodies that determine these matters. And uh, that's democracy in action, right? That it is. Colin, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Now, I mean, regarding the charter and things like mobility. So there is a court challenge about the fact that unvaccinated Canadians are unable to get on an aircraft, for instance. And that's going to be challenged. And if it's proven to be unconstitutional by the courts, then hopefully it'll be, well, automatically it'll be reversed. So hopefully the protections are what you need and want them to be. Uh, very quickly before we go, I want to say good morning and happy 50, 50th, uh, 55th wedding anniversary to Mary and Nash Pickett. That's today. They're formerly from Tilting on Fogo Island. They're now living in St. John's. Best wishes from family and friends to Mary and Nash Pickett. Happy 55th wedding anniversary. Let's take a break. Who are we coming back to, Dave? Who are we going to talk about? Okay, when we come back, we'll talk about Nord with uh, veteran consultant Rob Strong. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six. Good morning, Rob Strong. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well to the, uh, this morning. How about you? Good. I know we're talking about lost puppies, but I'm telling you, I found a rig. The West Hercules. Yeah, I found the West Hercules this morning two hours ago. She's halfway between the Shetland Islands and Norway, doing 4.9 knots, drawing 15 meters of water with an ETA in St. John's, or at least in Newfoundland, on the 17th of April at 12 noon. And then we'll make its way out to Sitka and the Cambriol Central out in the Flemish Pass. Yes, I'm assuming she may come to port or may come into Conception Bay, uh, before going to location, but she's scheduled to drill the two wells that we've been talked about, Sitka and West and Cambria Center for Equinor. So very encouraging indeed. Uh, obviously, we're still waiting for the formal go-ahead for Beta Nord, but I doubt very much whether Equinor would be sending this rig from Norway at a day rate of, oh, I don't know, $250,000 a day or so to drill two wells and estimate in those two wells about $60 million each. So I doubt whether very much whether they would be sending the rig unless they had some indication that the Beta Nord is going to get formal sanction. So that's that's a very, very good thing. It's it, it's a great uh, it's a great boost. Uh, it's good to have Equinor as the operator. 
uh, Equinor is ahead of the game when it comes to environmental implications. They're uh, an industry leader in carbon capture. They're looking at the electrification of rigs. So if we're going to have an off operator working offshore, it's sure nice to have Equinor. If you add that to the way I read between the lines in the federal government's greenhouse gas emissions, Equinor checks all the boxes with this proposed development out in Bay de Nord. They really do. The federal government, even uh, natural, ministers, John, natural uh, resources minister Jonathan Wilkinson, had to defend the fact that the government is talking about increasing oil production in the short term, albeit leaning towards low carbon. Then this is it. I mean, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't add up to what might be the opportunities in the oil sands, but it certainly does when we talk about what's off our shore. And along with Wilkinson, of course, the Prime Minister had some very positive things to say when he talked about the engineering community in Canada, and his remark, his remark was basically says, said that we're up to it. So, yeah, all indications are it's a go, so that's that's very encouraging. It, uh, you know, it's going to be five, six, maybe six years before we see first oil, but, you know, prior to first oil, there's some 60 wells to be drilled, and if you take an oil rig... Uh, an oil rig normally has a crew complement of 100, and then you have 100 guys, or 100 people, uh, not not working but sleeping, that's 200. And then you have the same crew ashore, that's 400. And then you have three supply boats at 15 each, so that's 45. And then you have helicopters, and then you have shore base and trucking companies and cement companies and mud companies and diving companies and testing companies. And, and, and uh, so it's a significant employment. My, my guess is that it's close to 1,000 people associated with the drilling of a well. So that's encouraging because, as you know, right now there's nobody doing any extra exploration activity offshore Newfoundland. Yeah, none. The last one was the Chinese National Oil Company. They drilled one hole, so this is even double what we saw last year. And just for some numbers for context, there's no such thing as green oil. We all know that. But off our shores, the intensity is, the carbon intensity, 14.4 kilograms per barrel. The international average is 17.9. In Alberta, it's 77. With the mitigation plans that Equinor has in place, it'll be the intensity of some 8 kilograms per barrel. So this hits right in the sweet spot if you listen to what the federal government had to say. It sure does. You certainly got your statistics right. The other thing, Patty, that I'm watching is the, and is another rig called the Stena Fourth. The Stena Fourth is a, a fifth-generation drill ship. It's currently anchored off Cyprus, but it's the rig that's been selected by Exxon and its partner, Catter, to drill the Hampton Well in the Flemish Pass. One assumes the reason she's not heading this way is that they're waiting for a formal decision on uh, on Equinor, and that the reason being obviously you're not going to come drill a well if you're if you're not going to be able to produce it at you know sixty sixty eighty million dollars a well. So I'm watching that one quite closely and looking forward to calling you someday soon and say the Stena Fourth is on the way as well. I don't, I'm not in the business of being a cockeyed optimist, but between what we heard from the federal government and the call for a 90 day delay in the bids at the CNLOPB land sales, if Bay the Nord got rejected and the land sales went ahead as, as planned, then the land sales would be woeful again this year. If there's a, a green light given to Bay the Nord, then the land sales would much, probably be much more encouraging. So, you know, I get the whole industry thought that these are two punches in the gut, but they might come out to be a bright side. Oh, I think everybody concedes the fact that if indeed Beta Nord doesn't get approved, that uh, 
she's all over. When I say she's all over, I mean as far as future exploration activity. No one wants to come drill wells if you're not going to be able to produce it. Sure. There still would be production, obviously, from Hibernia, Terranova, White Rose, and Hebron, and some potential for subsea tieback. But we need new discoveries. So uh, you're correct. If, if if indeed Beta Nord gets scuttled, uh, we must well pack our bags. And, uh, you know, all the work that we've done over the last 40 years, the wonderful work that Memorial has done, College of North, Amer- North Atlantic has done in prepping our, our people for, for work in the offshore, that that's that would be all in vain. So uh, it's 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 a I guess the word is a key indicator of our future from an oil and gas perspective. So fingers crossed, toes crossed that we'll see a favorable decision. I know you've speculated on the date. I've speculated on the date. Uh, and interesting to hear when exactly the date for the formal go-ahead will go. But listening to Wilkinson and the Prime Minister from Vancouver the other day, I don't think there's any doubt that she's going to get approved. And the both federal and provincial budgets are on the 7th of April, so I think there's going to be some connection with uh, decisions and announcements surrounding that date. Uh, the industry already, always wants, us, uh, wants regulatory certainty. They also want certainty that there's at least an opportunity for exploration to reduce to re- uh, result in production. Uh, good to have you on, Rob. Last word before I go. No last word. Just it's nice to have some good news, Patty. Appreciate your time. Okay, what? Well, take take good care. care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the executive director at Trades NL. That's Darren King. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, sir. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for taking my call. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. I, uh, I called on, on two items. I know you like people to stick to one topic, but if you would, one is a very short one. So I'd like to touch on, uh, before I get into Beta Nord, uh, Patty, I just, uh, on behalf of our membership, certainly want to express our support and, um, uh, you know, and empathy to the families going through the crisis in Ukraine. It's just totally totally devastating and uh, and you know we're certainly empathetic to what's happening there so um having said that i, I just want to announce that trade NL on behalf of our membership are going to contribute five thousand dollars to a ukraine fund set up through the red cross to do a little bit it's not a lot but it's a little bit to try and uh, get some funding in the system to help those who are being severely impacted by this devastation I I try not to overwhelm myself by taking in so many videos and pictures and commentary surrounding the war in Ukraine, but it is it's extraordinary humanitarian crisis. Not only the numbers of Ukrainians that have fled the country, but even if you just look at the one city of Mariupol, 90% of the residential buildings have been hit by missiles or destroyed in full. So we are talking about some incredible negative and horrific impact in that country. The war crimes that have been accused of uh, Vladimir Putin Putin seemed to be holding true. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing short of horrific, that's for sure. There's no question. It just tears your heart apart every time you turn on the TV and see it. Mm-hmm. So we, so we uh, as I said, I, I'm going to pivot to another topic, but I just wanted to have a quick comment on that because we're, you know, we're certainly happy on behalf of our membership to make a contribution, do a little bit, a small part. Uh, I'm sure many others are doing their part as well, and, and that's good to see. Um, so we're going to chip in as well. I just want to make that known publicly through, uh, through this medium. Uh, so thanks for that. But that is the the other topic I wanted to talk about. It was Beta Nord, and uh, you know I, I I've listened to you over the last few days, and I listened to Rob a few minutes ago, and I, I think many of us are in the same boat. I, I think 
all of the ducks are lining up that I, I think the federal government is going to proceed and, and approve Beta Nord. Um, I've got every confidence in that. I, I wasn't there a few weeks ago, but I, I do think it's going to proceed. Uh, I'm not going to repeat all the good reasons that you've talked about, but um, I do feel optimistic, and I think that. Uh, certainly tremendous news for the province uh, if and when we get it done. The piece I want to touch on briefly is that uh, I, I want to remind everyone that our attention, as we, we look to secure beta order, our attention beyond that needs to turn to local benefits and the benefits agreement that government will be negotiating and what that means to the province. Um, and, and, and as you know, I've, I've been a strong and uh, strong and vocal on this particular issue because it, the, the, the upside of the uh, work being done in this province is significant, both on the construction side for uh, the people that I represent with the top sides and subsea work, and and the spin-offs is, is probably more so because you've got all the supply and service sector, and you've got all the hotels and uh, and local uh, businesses and local communities that will be affected. And the other thing that often gets forgotten is that – when we do work here in the province, Patty, it helps us maintain and build our skilled trades workforce. And I can't underscore that enough because, um, you know, if we don't do work in the province, the opposite happens, that, that we erode our skilled trades workforce and we put ourselves in a situation where we don't have the skills and ability to do, do future work opportunities should it arise. But the, the other piece I, I just put in there before I kind of throw it back to you is, you know, the, if pe- people were aware of, of the contributions that past projects have made to the economy in the province. I, I, I just pick Hebron as an example because that's the last oil and gas project that we did. But, you know, using numbers that have been generated by governments at both levels, Hebron generated somewhere in the area of $7.17 billion to the local economy in Newfoundland and Labrador from 2012 to 2018, and an estimated 11,400 or so jobs created, both direct and indirect. So I say that just to, to highlight the importance of these projects to the province and what it does to the economy. So how much work do you see your group getting? I know you represent some, I think, 14 different trades unions. So just how much work do you think you're going to get? Well, I have no idea on that one, to be to be frank with you, because it, you know it's been a bit of a bit of a mystery and a bit of a, a cloud of secrecy over the initial announcement. There were talks of five thousand metric tons, and no one really knew what that meant. Um, so I know you know today we talked to the minister and we talked to officials, and and we're really going back almost to zero and start over on the benefits agreement because we've got an entirely entirely different project now, as you know. Uh, when the project started, it was initially somewhere in the area of 300 million barrels of oil. Now we're up to a billion, and they were talking about a $35 barrel break-even point. Today, we're well over 100. So, you know, it, it's chalk and cheese to compare the projects. But in terms of what we're able to do, um, we understand that the haul can't be done here for obvious reasons. We don't have the it's nothing to do with the trades work. It, it's got it, we just don't have the capacity or the facilities to generate and create such a beast. But the top sides work, um, we've done all of that in the past here. We have the ability, I mean, skilled trades workers that can do that, the living quarters and all the other things that make up the top sides on the FPSO. Uh, we've done that in the past with the Terra Nova, for example. Um, and then there's the subsea work, the piping work. And I understand that there's going to be a large amount of piping work required as part of this project. So all of that can be done in the province. The question, I guess, is whether it will be negotiated in the benefits agreement and, and government and others will take the position that we want those maximum benefits here. Um, you know, our concern, and I've raised it with you before, is is we fight to get projects like the, the recent Terra Nova refit and, and we got the project and the project's going to proceed and that's all well and good. 
But the result of that is if you park the fact that it's going to produce oil for the next 10 years and we have secured the jobs on the, the rig, we have given up royalties and we give the entire refit, for, except for about a month and a half work, the entire refit has gone to Spain. And that could have been done right here in Newfoundland and Labrador, except for the hall part. So that, that's a concern we have. You know, we support Beta Nord fully, but we don't support it at all costs. We, we believe there has to be a maximum benefit to this province, and that has to include the creation of work opportunities here, not only for the skilled trades workers, but for the many supply and service sector companies who also make a living in that industry. What do you make of the news uh, surrounding the North Fault, Swedish battery manufacturer, striking a deal with Valley? That's another thing that could be a big boost to your group. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, we've we've got uh, we've got people in in, Valley, in Boise Bay now working on the expansion project, and we've got a number of workers who work out in Valley on a regular basis in Long Harbor, excuse me, on the maintenance sector. I mean, I think that's tremendous news, and I think it just bodes well for the mining industry here for sure. Uh, you know, Valley has found new deposits up there; they're investing significant money in this expansion project, and who knows? You know, there may be other other deposits in the Labrador region that we'll tap into. But I, I think especially where um, where we're going in the world towards green energy and uh, and the increased focus on alternate forms of vehicles other than combustion engines i think it's just tremendous opportunities not only for the construction side but for day-to-day operational jobs and, and again for the supply and service sector so i think that's just tremendous news it really is I, you know we are going to see some sort of sunset in the fossil fuel business over the next number of decades and everyone knows it to be true but we still have some big opportunities in this province and and hopefully folks don't lose sight of that because it's easy to get trapped in the doldrums of, oh, no, everything has gone to pot, when, in fact, there are still opportunities there. Well, Petty, there are lots of opportunities. And, uh, you know, without telling tales at a school, I can tell you that uh, I'm having discussions fairly regularly with proponents who are looking at uh, hydrogen projects, proponents who are looking at wind further wind projects in the province. So there's lots of opportunities on the horizon. Um, you know, I, I think we just we got to continue to maximize our oil and gas industry. I mean, as many people before me have said, you know, the, the industry is not going to die overnight. There's going to be a, a long transition period, and Beta Nord represents one of those projects that can make a really positive contribution if there's such a thing from oil and gas. But the, the future is bright for alternative sources of energy, and what Newfoundland and Labrador can contribute to that. There's no question. That's a fact. Uh, anything else this morning, uh, Darren, before we say goodbye? No, that's great. I just appreciate the opportunity, as always, to have a few words, and I look forward to chatting again in the future. Appreciate your time. Take good care. All the best. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. It's Darren King. He's the Executive Director of Trades and Analysts. Take a break. When we come back, Edward wants to talk about electric vehicles. Sam's in the queue to talk about doctors or the lack thereof on the west coast of the island. Trevor's got an issue with home care, and then lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Edward. You're on the air. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Well, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, I kind of kind of wondering why well i'm gonna say why but everybody's talking about electric vehicles and all that great wonderful you know sounds great wonderful but we simply do not have the infrastructure for any such event by any means to actually have everybody have electric vehicles especially semi-trucks i mean the teslas itself the semi-truck teslas are, are only basically rated between three to maybe 500 miles right we need more than that here in Newfoundland because, I mean, how much how much of our supply chain is relying on semi-trucks going back and forth the island from Port of Bass to St. John's? A tremendous amount. Right. So until we actually have the infrastructure to actually support these large battery-operated vehicles, 
and we don't have that that that's any type of, of infrastructure whatsoever involved in it but in this province and in this country, electric vehicles are in their infancy. So like sure. everything else, when we see change and evolution of technology and innovation, you know, it's cart and horse kind of stuff. And you're right. Unless the infrastructure is there for the federal government targets of 100% electric vehicles by 2035, unless you have places that are convenient and the fast tracking or the fast uh, charging stations and the move towards a solid state battery versus the polymer lithium ions and whatnot, yeah, of course. So it can't happen today, but that doesn't mean it can't happen period no no i mean it will happen to a point but the main thing right now is that okay you can put an electric charger in fine but later on down the road the amount of electric chargers involved you're going to have an electrical grid that has to has to have the capacity to do that so i mean to even start that we're going to have to start looking at other means of electrical generation i mean you got to have more power than we have now to actually establish that by any particular means, just just for the mega chargers themselves, for the Tesla semis. I mean, they go throw like a, a megawatt of electricity, for God's sake, in less than a half hour. So, I mean, we need some tremendous amount of major electrical generation going on from either from Labrador or somewhere in Newfoundland to even establish that. Even on yeah, it'll take years. But I'd say, realistically, I mean, we're going to be reliant, especially on diesel fuel, because that's what mainly most semis are running on until the next 30 years. I mean, it's not going to be an overnight thing. But I don't think it's mean, always going to be simply reliant on the government to do these things. Industry is going to play a role. I mean, if the oh, yeah. business itself has a model that looks like it's more efficient and cost-effective, and they'll play a role if they think that the electric uh, semi-trucks are for them, they'll play a role in making sure the infrastructure is in place for their efficiency as well. So, again, this is not a one-size-fits-all, and government is here to save your life, and if they don't do it, nobody will. It doesn't have to be that way. No, no, but it seems like everybody's just talking about cars, but they're not actually thinking of our own supply chain, our own logistics when it comes to reliant and very heavily reliant on semis. Yeah, sure. But, I mean, add the agricultural sector, too. I mean, there's, what, a trillion dollars worth of agricultural vehicles out there that are not overnight going to turn into hydrogen-powered or hybrids or full electrical. And it's quite likely that the bulk of electric vehicles will be hybrids. I mean, so we can't lose sight of that as well. So people will have some reliability concerns addressed by the fact that hybrids will probably be the most popular vehicles on the road versus the 100% electric vehicle. And it's going to take time for these changes to happen. But, you know, like when we went from... Uh, and this is not to be saucy, Well, we went from uh, horse and buggy, there were no gas stations, but when cars were being built with internal combustion engines, all of a sudden the infrastructure required, a la a gas station, became part of the landscape. So I think we're going to see the, the, the same organic transformation inside of the world of automobiles. If we're talking about curbing greenhouse gas emissions in this country, the oil and gas sector contributes 26%. The next is a very close second is the transportation industry with 25%. So it's going to take time for the change to come to pass. You can't flip a switch and all of a sudden everyone's got a, a vault in the driveway and a charger down the street. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And the problem is, I mean, also, if if the demand for electricity gets up, of course, guess what? The price of electricity is going to go up too, which we know very well that has not got down in a very, 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 very long time and probably never will. Yeah, but it also depends on the source of the energy, doesn't it? So with a mega dam on the Churchill River, another one, that's one source of energy. But we do see the transformation in the world of battery storage and what that might mean for solar and wind and tidal and all of these things will be part of the 
grid. You know, for ever and a day, we were firmly reliant on coal. That's gone by the wayside for the most part. I mean, even though half of the electricity generated in the province of Nova Scotia is from coal, which is unbelievable still in 2022 modern-day Canada. So things will change. It might be incrementally, but it's happening inevitably. I mean, the worst comes to worst. I mean, realistically, if the energy is not there to actually support the actual infrastructure, then you had to go back to nuclear power, for God's sake. Well, it's crazy, but you never know. It's not crazy. There's even reference to small nuclear in uh, the federal government's greenhouse gas emissions plan because, you know, people have a big built-in fear, whether it be because of Chernobyl or Three Mile Island regarding nuclear, but it's safe. It is quite environmentally friendly, although it has to be regulated very carefully. But that that's actually in the government's plan as well. The province of Ontario, I think in partnership with maybe New Brunswick, uh, they're talking about some small nuclear facilities to be constructed as well. So all these types of things will replace what we've been reliant on. Bunker C at Holyrood, coal at whatever mine or whatever electric generation facility. So, again, when the world changes, we can either be part of the change or we can chase our tail. Yeah, and also what we have now for infrastructure when it comes to hydroelectric power, that infrastructure is going to have to be either upgraded or replaced with something newer. And, of course, that's, you know, that's down the road itself. But I haven't heard of any, say, generation stations or new generation stations being established anywhere in Newfoundland itself or maybe, you know, Western Canada or anything like that, which there's got to be some plans going on because, I mean, the demand of electricity is going to go up. So these generation stations are going to have to start being developed now. Yeah, but there are are plans. I mean, there's a mega plan for LNG on the country's west coast. There's a plan or proposal for LNG here in this province. So all of these things in conjunction will replace what we've been reliant on. Now, again, it's not tomorrow, but it's before we know it. Things happen very quickly. You know, the concept of uh, 10 years down the road, it sounds like a long time, but before we know it, those 10 years have passed. And you're right. Unless you plan for it, it'll be haphazard and chaotic, and it probably won't work. So plans are always the key, and getting off on the right foot will always result in a better outcome. So, yeah, no argument here. Anyway, you have a good day, and hopefully some will start looking to the future because we definitely need to go. Got to go to the future way, way, very, very quick now. I'm st- I try to keep my eye on the prize, which is the future. Looking back, we can learn lessons from history, mistakes that we've made, and try not to replicate them. But, yeah, if we look down the road and we plan carefully and not cautiously but carefully, then we'll get where we need to be, I would imagine. Uh, good to have you on the show, Edward. Have a good day. Same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Now, there's... Lots of opposition to all kinds of things that are being proposed and public policy and government action. And there are lots of people in this province and across the country who are concerned. Of course they are with the climate crisis. And so while the financial outcomes and the financial implications of beta and order are very clear, there's also environmental concerns that are shared by many groups, including the Sierra Club. The local organizer of the Sierra Club of Canada here in this province is Heather Elliott. She's up after this. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's say good morning to Heather Elliott on line number four. She's the NL local organizer with the Sierra Club of Canada Foundation. Good morning, Heather. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad. A little concerned about the whole Bay du Nord thing, but the sun's shining, so that's an upside. <laughs> that it is. 
Um, so my main thing is there was an article specifically that went out on VOCM yesterday online, and it was talking about the federal government's new emissions plan. And Sierra Club has a couple of concerns with this idea that we can continue to grow oil and gas production and still somehow meet our targets. Um, the main thing to remember is that there has been research done that shows that the way that our oil and gas industry is right now, just right now without Beijing without any other additional projects that industry would single-handedly cause Canada to miss every single climate target that we have set um, even if every other industry in the country went to net zero so it is a fallacy to believe that approving a project like Beige Nord would actually in any way shape or form help us meet our targets because we would actually shoot directly past them um, on top of that, there's a lot of conversation going on about how Beijing Nord might actually be able to help with the energy crunch that Europe is facing right now uh, because of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. And when you look at the project, I mean, the project isn't due to come online for at least another six to eight years. A lot can change in that amount of time. And globally, we're looking at possibly reaching peak demand for oil around the same time. So we're talking about approving a project that once it's online might be pumping oil for a market that's likely decreasing its demand. So it's just a poor investment on that part as well. Well, the investment would be uh, in large part by the private sector versus the 10% equity that the province is talking about. The issues surrounding uh, supply for Europe, of course, that's not for tomorrow, but there will always be some form of reliance on oil that comes from in particular Russia. That's 10% of the global supply. So if that can mm -hmm. be eliminated by other sources that are not people refer to as dictatorial oil, then that sounds like a pragmatic part of the conversation. It doesn't ease anything today. That's absolutely true. Let's look at the issues surrounding what the carbon intensity would be for different particular oil fields. And where the federal government says, you know, realistically, and I think the world realistically, we're not going to be able to transition quickly. It's going to take time. Mm -hmm. And some of those products will include natural gas and hydrogen and absolutely. others. So if we talk about the carbon intensity of Beta Nord versus what we see in other oil possibilities, even in just in this country. If the international average of carbon intensity is 17.9 kilograms per barrel, in Alberta it's 77, the, uh, our offshore is 14.4, Bay de Nord with the rate, with, pardon me, the mitigation measures Equinor is going to implement as part of their approval plan is going to be 8 kilograms per barrel. So even on the intensity front, do you think that if there's going to be any oil, we should just be trying to search out and produce the most carbon, less intense carbon uh, oil like Beta Nord? I think the issue is that regardless of how much carbon it costs to actually take the oil out of the ground, the oil still has to be transported, refined, and burned. Yeah, it's a life cycle. All of that yeah. releases carbon. Yeah. So when you're talking about that, like, sure, it might take less carbon to actually get it out of the ground, but the fact is that carbon is still going to be released down the road, and those numbers eventually end up almost effectively canceling each other out. We've done analysis that, or analyses excuse me, that show that currently right now we have enough oil in production that we should be able to meet all of our global energy demands as we continue to move towards more efficient and renewable things like your previous caller was talking about electric vehicles and you had a great conversation about what that's going to look like in terms of investment in infrastructure and building that setup. 
Um, I don't think that at this point, regardless of if with all of those, um, you know, mitigation techniques, it's lower carbon, you're still releasing the carbon. We're still talking about missing those emission targets. We don't need to drill new wells in order to meet those demands. I'm not sure how your analysis worked. If, say, for instance, uh, the oil carbon intensity in Alberta at 77 kilograms per barrel mm-hmm. versus eight per barrel here, even if we're talking the completion of the life cycle right to the end consumer after transportation and all the rest of it, how can those numbers wash out? I mean, there's a long way between 77 and eight. Well, what I'm saying is that when you look at what the world is going to look like when Beijing Nord is supposed to come online, for the demand that we are going to have, what the numbers we need in order to meet peak demand, we're already producing that oil. You're talking about opening another massive project that is just going to continue pumping oil for, I believe they've said the lifestyle, uh, the life expectancy is about 30 years. Um We're going to be creating oil for a market that's likely not going to need it, which means we're going to potentially look at a larger cost financially for actually having stranded assets in the middle of the Atlantic. But isn't that the concern of the oil company itself? Potentially, but I think it's also the concern for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador because we're the ones who are going to have to deal with it if there's some kind of leak or if, you know, we end up, we subsidize the industry. That's money that we're pouring in that we may never see back in revenue. As part of a just transition, not only focusing on employees mm-hmm. versus companies, it still will cost money. And I know that's something that Absolutely. you know climate environmentalists don't want to talk about because it's a difficult part of the conversation. It's where mm-hmm. the difficulty in striking a balance is unmanageable if you're on one side or the other in full. So mm-hmm. even to pay for some of the transition, electric vehicle infrastructure, uh, hydrogen developments, whatever the place wants to look like, the transition fuel that might be natural gas. In this province, where we have have an unfortunate reliance on the royalties and jobs and the tax base created by the oil and gas industry to pay for some of these transitions that you and others would like to see, me included, it's going to cost. How do we replicate the money coming from that particular field? Without it, can we even fund the transition that you yearn for? Well, I think it's important to realize that even before COVID, so even before the industry had uh, you know, to shut sites down and we saw a huge decrease in production just because everybody had to go home. Um, jobs and royalties were already in decline coming from the oil and gas sector. Uh, technological efficiencies have made it that they can do the job with less hands. So you're looking at less employment jobs as it is. On top of that, I think looking at the amount of money that we as a province and you know, invest into the oil and gas industry in terms of subsidies and potentially having the very difficult discussion. And you're right. The money conversation is a hard conversation because inevitably it boils down to, you know, we're talking about things that are going to happen in the distant future, but there's folks who have to make mortgage payments and car payments and all those things now. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I think it's a matter of having those difficult conversations and saying, can we reprioritize what we are spending money on in terms of those subsidies and look at redirecting some of those funds to infrastructure and innovations and projects here in the province to help folks transition. $83 million, I believe, is what the province paid in subsidies just last year to the oil and gas sector. That could make a huge difference for a lot of people who want to transition away from oil and gas or for different businesses that want to get projects off the ground to create more renewable alternatives here in the province.
I think it's an evolutionary change that we're talking about. Peak demand for oil, which I think is a, is also a curious part of the conversation, is because mm-hmm. sometimes when people say peak demand, it almost feels like they're implying that after peak demand, it goes away in full. Well, that's not how anything works, as you oh, and no. I both know. So peak demand uh, depends on who your experts are that you go to. We mm-hmm. all see some people say it's 20 years from now. Some people say it's 30 years from now. Some people say it's 40 mm-hmm. years from now. A lot of that will... Uh, rely on the population of the world and how quick other countries, including Canada, transition away from reliance on fossil fuels. So mm-hmm. even if, say, Beta Nord's lifespan is 30 years, we'll just use 30 years, Sure, that'll bring them into where peak is. And so after peak, there will be an incremental drop in the reliance on. I don't know how quick that will be. I don't think anybody really knows. So it seems to me that 30-year lifespan absolutely accommodates the continued need or reliance on fossil fuels, even if we know that we've got some dastardly issues that we have to deal with regarding climate. So uh, I think that's how people factor it in when they include demand, supply, price, jobs, royalties. And even if there's less jobs, the royalties to the province are where I think the real financial conversation begins because there's Mm -hmm. nothing that we can see in the future that replicates what the oil industry has produced. And unfortunately, we got carried away. We became drunk on low sweet crude, uh, our light sweet crude. It hasn't served us that great when we find ourselves in the pinch we are. But the continued borrowing and all the transitional dollars, like even $83 million. We spend over a million dollars a day servicing the debt. We spend more to service the debt uh, than we do spend on education. So to replicate mm-hmm. what the oil companies or the oil royalties represent, whether it be the social programs, whether it be the ability to uh, keep the roads and the hospitals and the schools open, they all play an active role in the conversation, regardless of where you come down on the oil business, I think. And I mean, it's like many things that we talk about that are very complex and complicated. It's Absolutely. hard to wrap your mind around exactly what the best approach is. You know, it's easy enough to say leave it all in the ground versus even the also were just pro-oil, pump it all, baby. There's somewhere in the middle probably makes a bit more sense. Absolutely, and I completely agree with you. I think, you know, the focus that I take and that, you know, Sierra Club takes is that when it comes to looking at production and whatever, obviously, as you say, and I mean, you and I both agree on this, we're not going to turn the taps off tomorrow. It's not going to happen. There is going to be a continued reliance that's going to go on for years to come. It's important to look at the research that we have that says, you know, we are going to reach a tipping point when it comes to the amount of carbon we're pumping into the air and the amount of damage we've done to the planet. And so whatever steps we can take now to mitigate that as best we can, we should. Um, I think when it comes to just looking at how we're going to possibly meet those targets, green lighting a huge mega project like Bay du Nord is a bad idea because you're still talking about downstream emissions. You're still talking about ways that that's going to impact, you know, the global climate as a whole. And when you look at the oil that we have in production now, we're going to have to start moving. And this is my thing is it makes more sense to use what we have and start looking at investing in other options. In the province, we have experimental wind farms that could be expanded. And you were just having a conversation about the technology that's been going into extending battery life and what that could mean for solar and wind. And I know, I know because I moved here when oil was really, really good and we're never going to get back to those days. But I think holding that like a carrot for a lot of folks saying, but if we get Newfoundland oil and gas back to the way it was, you know, we'll have a few more good years. 
we could have those really hard conversations right now about, well, what would it look like if we did start weaning ourselves off of oil and gas? What if we started looking at countries like Finland that have drastically reduced their reliance on oil and invested in renewables and efficiencies? There are templates out there that we can use. And we have really, because of our position, we have the opportunity to be the national trendsetter in how to do that. Okay, but there's also templates regarding renewables that are brutally expensive and have been deeply flawed. You know, look at Germany, for instance, with their investment in wind. So Mm -hmm. for me, when we talk about energy, if we're talking about what energizes and powers this province, it has very little to do with our offshore. I mean, once Hollywood mm-hmm. gets decommissioned, if that ever happens, I mean, we'll have some 95 reliance on hydro. So the oil that we produce here is a global commodity. We ship it away. We don't do anything with it yep. here, especially now Absolutely. that combustion Chance has moved to biofuel. So it's not really an energy conversation about us. It's an energy demand globally that I think the oil industry talks about and how decisions are made. Unbelievably, there's still so much coal being burnt in this world. It's mind-boggling. You know, not only is it uh, harmful to the environment, it's harmful to the individual and it just makes absolutely no sense so that's why there's things like international agreements the paris agreement those are the things that are going to help us make a transition make sense and you know people say well why should we do anything our emissions are only 1.3 percent blah 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 we punch way above our weight uh when it comes to per capita emissions that's true you know what about china russia india well we can't do anything about what china russia india do exactly or even the united states but if there's going to be a drop of oil produced in this world even for the sierra club of Canada, if that becomes a reality, which we have no control over because we're talking Guyana and Russia and Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Mm -hmm. Venezuela, throw them all into the pot, globally our best interest is if there's one more drop produced, it's the least carbon intense oil that we have to focus on as an international community. And here we might be able to play a role on that front. You know, it's looking out for number one and fill up the provincial coffers and the country will have a transition plan. But if the whole world, including the oil companies, when they're trying to raise money for these types of investments, they will have their uh, investors look at things like human rights, carbon emissions, all of those things, full life cycle to grant your point, which is absolutely true. I think we still play a role on that front. And you hear me talk about the transition and the the mining industry and electric batteries. You know, I I think they all have to happen concurrently as we try to phase our way out to a cleaner, Mm -hmm. greener world. If our folks think climate change is not real, you're sadly mistaken. And even if we talk about air pollution, it kills 5 million people every single year. So cleaning the place up makes all the sense in the world. I'll give you the last word, Heather. I was just going to say you make some excellent points. I absolutely agree. I think when it comes to global production, you know, obviously none of us saw Russia and Ukraine coming. I think using that as a justification for a project that under the best of circumstances is going to kick off in six to eight years. And that's if everything goes according to plan. And we both know that rarely do things always go according to plan. You know, it's it's a it's a bad faith argument. We make enough that if that was a, a gap in the market that needed to be filled, Canada's already positioned to do that. We don't need another well in order to be able to meet that demand. Yeah, it's not the a short term issue. The oil that'll come out, yeah, the oil that'll come out of Beijing Nord isn't going to help anybody in Europe for at least another decade, if at all. Yeah, they say Equinor says uh, first oil in 2028, and they've proven yeah. to be a very effective, efficient company on these types of things. If you look at the way they've operated in the North Sea. That, you know, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as clean oil, but these they've been an honest broker, at least. And hitting targets has been a benchmark, a, a source of pride for Equinor, and, and I've had a good look at it just because yeah, I feel like course. I should. Uh, Heather, it's good to have you on the show. The, the opposing views on any issue are always welcome here because conversations lead to good decisions. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Patty. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Take good care. You too. All right. Bye-bye. As Heather Elliott, she's the local organizer for the Sierra Club of Canada Foundation. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Sam, you're still there. Trevor, appreciate your patience. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Trevor, you're on the air. Good morning, Trevor. Line number three. Hey, good morning. How are you, Patty? Not too bad, sir. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, I'm not really sure if Open Line is a place for this or not, but I'm just frustrated and I'm reaching out for mental health and addictions to get in touch with me. Um, I'm dealing with my sister who is deaf and has special needs, and we're trying to fight for more home care hours for her. Um, it's an isolated situation with her, Patty. Like Eastern Health, they have a general um, chart, I guess, or a grouping of, okay, well, if you fall into this group, you apply for these many hours, and if you fall into this group, then you're eligible for those many hours. But my sister's case is very different. Um, she was uh, abused, I guess, at a residential school here in St. John's for most of her child life, and then she moved to the west coast of Newfoundland with um, our mother, where she was abused there for 17 and a half years, and it resulted in a, in a trial. So basically, my sister has known nothing but sexual abuse and, and, and that kind of thing. So we're fighting with Eastern Health to try to get this young woman um, back as a, a contributing member of society where she can live on her own and be able to live a normal life like everyone else. Uh, my sister has now uh, completed her education with Stella Circle, and she's now started with the Discovery Center uh, here in St. John's as well, where she's going to finally receive her grade 12 education, which she wasn't able to receive years ago because of the abuse that happened at the school. So, you know, um, I'm not able to get any um, satisfaction from Eastern Health. I'm after leaving umpteen messages. I'm after reaching out to the navigator of mental health and addictions, uh, Mr. Barry Hewitt. He's uh, been great in communication, but we still can't get any satisfaction from Eastern Health itself. So I have no choice but go public, and hopefully I can get some numbers or contact information to uh, go from here. What, what exactly does your sister need? Uh, well, Patty, it's, it's a... It's, it's or what a does she get now what the, versus what she needs? Well, basically right now they're, they're saying that, you know, basically for a lack of a better word, because she can wash herself, she don't need no extra help. But this woman has been isolated. She spent basically, for the lack of a better word, 25 years barred into a bedroom with no access to a computer, internet, no access to any outside enterprise. Um, basically, she has been institutionalized. It's like taking someone who's been in jail for 30, 40 years, taking them out of jail and saying, okay, here, go live in society. It, it's not going to happen that way. This woman doesn't know how to live on her own properly. She, uh, I seen her sneezing the other day at 41 years old. I thought she was taking a seizure, man. Her mother hasn't even taught her how to blow her nose. So this woman is trying to learn everything for the first time, and it's 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 um, it's aggravating. It's it's frustrating. And you look at other people in the community who are getting all these hours for home care, and basically, Patty, what's happening is these two people have an agreement. Uh, they split the check and go on the booth. And here I am over here losing jobs, not able to maintain a proper job because I have to leave and come take care of my sister. Or if she's having night terror, she can't sleep in the nighttime someone has to be here with her it's it's an isolated situation it's not uh, you can't just put her into a group and say okay well here's the home care hours she she's she's fit for so right now um 
I need to get in touch with someone who's going to be able to hear me because the next step is going to NTV or CBC because it just can't stop here. Um, you're talking about charter rights and you're talking about freedoms and, and we're all celebrating what we have and, and really my sister's deaf and every time something happens, she's put into a hospital, there's no interpreters, there's no nothing. Uh, we had to fight to get an, an on-call interpreter uh, on staff because there, a few years ago my sister was hospitalized in Cornerbrook in the psychiatry unit for three weeks and she wasn't even she didn't even have access to an interpreter patty mm-hmm. i had to drive back and forth to stephenville to make sure this woman was eating to make sure she had fresh air to make sure she and when i call out to the hospital to ask if they were if she's okay if she had some fresh air they're like it's not my responsibility to go check on her well listen the woman's deaf she she needs someone to go tell her what she's able to do and what she's not able to do so for the lack of a better word this woman has grown up very passive, afraid to ask for anything. She's very, very um, full of anxiety. She has PTSD. She has night terrors right now. She's doing a a very extensive trauma therapy where she's speaking with two uh, trauma therapists uh, on a weekly basis to try to to get to the root of all her abuse and her issues so that she can actually live a normal life, man. And it's, it's heartbreaking when you see so many people abusing the system and so many people that go on undetected and you're here doing the best you can, and you can't get no help. It's disgusting. Yeah, I, I was. I'm tempted to say, uh, go into the other media outlets. Absolutely, if you think that will help your cause. But you already started at the top of the food chain. Um, so, I, I have a couple of suggestions. It's, mm-hmm. it's always good to have a champion in your corner, someone who can advocate on your behalf. And this won't be directly related to increasing home care hours, but yeah. try to deal with the Association for the Deaf because they can indeed be part of your push. So, you know, there's strength in numbers and they might have some inside uh, information about what you should or could be doing in an effort to help your sister more and more. So that, for starters, do that because they'll have experience in dealing with issues surrounding the deaf or hard hearing community. That would include home care. So I would try that as well as uh, the push you're putting forward on your own. And I, I'm sorry, I go ahead. That. I'm sorry about that. I appreciate that, Patty. But, you know, uh, when it comes to the Newfoundland Labrador Association for the Deaf, um, uh, I don't want to speak. I don't want to speak too much on that, but, you know, like every organization, you have your favorites, you have your this, you have your that. I'm after going to the Newfoundland Association for the Deaf, and it's just well to stick my finger up my my rear end and and, and sing myself to sleep. Uh, There's no help. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I'm just trying to come up with suggestions that might give you a little additional horsepower. I'm open. I'm open. I'm just frustrated. I'm at the end of my ropes here. So, like, if you hear the frustration in my voice, it's not that I'm upset with you, man. It's just that I'm just – who has to do this? Who has to go – fighting with people to try to get someone taken care of like because of the federal government and provincial government my sister was robbed of an education because of sexual abuse and now all we're asking was that people come to the table and help this woman get the help she needs so that her shit is dealt with so she can move forward and enjoy the rest of her life she's 41 years old man she has to have some quality of life of course she does and the history is horrific and I'm sorry to hear Absolutely. it. Absolutely. No, and I appreciate that. Thank you. And that's what I'm saying. So it's an isolated situation. You can't just look at my sister and say, hey, all right, well, she can take care of herself, um, you know, by washing herself and that, but she don't need no other assistance. You come talk to this woman, and five minutes, Patty, you think she was the sweetest thing, and there's nothing wrong with her, but you spend 24 hours with her, and you can see that a lot of things that we take for granted, common sense things, she don't hate. 
she don't have. So this is the frustrating part. We have to teach her basically from a child and teach her the rights and wrongs and then how to, to live in society and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And a few hours is not going to do that. So I really appreciate your time. I just hope that I was able to, you know, strike a few nerves with some other people out there and probably hear from other people that are in the situation. Are there other people out there that are frustrated with health care, frustrated with mental health? You know, there's a big uh, focus on mental health for the last few months here, but it seems like when someone with mental health issues go to um, opening, um, uh, there's a place down in Pleasantville, um, crisis, mobile crisis center or something. There's been times when we've had to call them and look for help and they leave you hanging. They don't even return your phone call. So I don't even reach out to these people anymore. I have a couple of contacts. Uh, if we're talking about whenever you feel the need to speak with somebody regarding your mental health or your mental wellness, there's a couple of organizations that we've had great success with when we've connected people with them. I okay. I'm not so sure if you're interested, but one, I would suggest that if you go to just your Google, and I actually have numbers there if you like, uh, for Wellness yeah. Together, uh, yeah. it's a very helpful organization. It might even be okay. of value to your sister because there's some text options as well, as opposed to simply talking on the telephone. So that's okay. one group that people are really had some success because it's available 24 7 365 there's always someone there so nice. that's one place that i would point you awesome i appreciate that buddy um and just just to add just to clue it all up just so that people don't misunderstand is that <clears throat> my sister doesn't also understand english so if someone was texting her or sending her mail or she had to go communicate for herself if she was by herself in public she can't understand english this is why she's in school she's now done her grade seven so she's working through the classes to get her education so that she doesn't rely on sign language okay. so that if she's out somewhere in public and there's no one that can talk sign language asl that she can communicate through paper and pen so we're, we're getting her to where she needs to be is just a very very long frustrating process when you're on your own I understand, and I wish you nothing but the best. If you think I can be of any assistance, or if someone reaches out to me with some suggestions, if you pop me a quick email so I have your contact info, I'll be happy to pass along anything that I think will be helpful. God bless you, buddy. I appreciate you. Thanks, Patty. Take good care, man. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye, Trevor. Boy, uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number two. Sam, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Thanks, you. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, an update I was talking to last uh, Tuesday on my dad. He, uh, about, uh, he's been uh, not getting the proper medications or getting investigated for his health issues that was going on with him, like uh, with his uh, pressure, the pressure down below and peeing very little and the discomfort and peeing blood he was getting and was no... Uh, infection so also we know that was some sort of blockages so anyway i guess conditions got worse for him yes and he went into the hospital in sir thomas roger hospital in steamo the ambulance so he's in there right now he's waiting to see somebody but they're just monitoring right now because we have like i said a doctor shortage and a specialist shortage yesterday the, the emergency room was full the hospital uh, the way hospital emergency waiting room was full only one doctor in emergency so you mean it's a, it's very hard for anybody getting any kind of help at all if you're in any kind of conditions or even bad conditions right and uh, right now our, our uh, healthcare, care clinic one of the clinics based st george medical clinic in steenville there's 1600 people that uh, go to that clinic do not have a doctor 
if you were to see a nurse practitioner, if you get one, is a charge of I think it's thirty or forty dollars a visit. So it works probably around four hundred dollars a year. So most people cannot afford that charge to see an NP. So we're, we we still we still striving uh, to get more doctors here. And we sort of blame some of the responsibilities in Western Healthcare and the Chief Medical Board on, in uh, in Western Newfoundland at Sir Thomas Roderick Hospital, right? So that was uh, yeah. So that was a nurse practitioner in their own private clinic. That's right. Okay. So uh, as of now, we we don't know what's going on with him. So he's uh, he's in there now, waiting to get his. Uh, they get to see somebody, and he's being monitored. And I mean, he's probably the first time he probably got any rest was last night because he hooked up to a catheter. And uh, because he home, he was going to the bathroom every half hour or so because he was has so much pressure. And where his heart, like I said, works 35%. And he uh, had a bypass four years ago, uh, so we were concerned that it probably would take him out because where his body's been through, put through a lot of stress and not getting the proper rest, right? I mean, and plus with this discomfort, the issues that we don't know as is going on, that has to be investigated. So uh, basically we, we, we want, like I said, I'm still trying to, uh, to to get more doctors here. We're trying to get more doctors to come here. I don't know what the Western Healthcare is going to do or even the Newfoundland government because, I mean, they're, the doctors is here, they're not staying, and they're overworked. They're double the workloads, and, I mean, it's understaffed. So something needs to be done, and uh, and people need their health care. And, you know, myself as well, I'm a victim as well, so, you mean, I don't have a doctor. And uh, and it's very hard for anybody here in the western area in Steenville, Bay St. George area. It's it's a tough slog out there in the healthcare world, getting access to a doctor and what people refer to as timely treatments for whatever their ailment might be. Uh, anything else in the uptake world this morning, Sam, while we have you? No, this is that's about it. That's all I have to say anyway. So we're just like I said, uh, hopefully something will change in the near future, and hopefully we'll get see some doctors. But right up now, we don't see no sign of anything happening anytime soon. I appreciate your time. I wish you and your dad well. Have a good day. You too, Sam. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. So, oh, geez, 15 after already. Uh, let's see here. Stephenville Councillor Lenny Tiller. He's in the queue on line number one. He wants to talk about dealing with some red tape out in the out in his community. And we'll see what he has to say right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just before we get to Councillor Tiller, this is a heads up coming from a listener and a tweeter. If you are forced to go out and buy a rapid antigen test kit, make sure everything you need is in the kit. Because this lady went out and she got the test swabs, but she didn't get the rig where you apply the swab to see whether or not you have tested positive for the coronavirus. So that's a heads up. Make sure you go through the kit and ensure all parts are involved and included. Okay, let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Stephenville Town Councillor, Lenny Tiller. Good morning, Councillor Tiller. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great, sir. You? Not too bad. Um, I'll call in about two different things today. The first thing I'll, I'll call in about is to uh, to say thank you to my uh, fellow council colleagues and mayor for back in November approving um, which I think is the first ever accessibility advisor committee the town has ever had. Um, th- this committee is, is full of field experts and people with lived experience, including my father. I talked to you last August before I, uh, well, I was running in the election. My father has been in a wheelchair since I've been three years old. Um, so I'm well versed in the standpoint of accessibility, what it's like to live uh, with an individual that has these needs. And uh, we're certainly lacking provincially and in town. So the creation of this advisory committee to advise council at, at, at each level is, is very um, 
they're very encouraging, I guess, because we are following along with the with the province as well. Okay. And um, uh, the next thing I, I, I call to talk about is around accessibility. Okay. But uh, I, I have two grandparents who uh, who are in their eighties, and um, fortunately, I'm here. I live with them. I can I can go through the things that need to be done for them, but. I've got to thinking as of late, if, if a senior was living alone or they were just a couple like my grandparents and they didn't have anybody to get through the red tape, whether it was for home care or home improvement needs for accessibility or anything, they'd be in a lot of trouble. I mean, we've been two to three months now, just constant, constant, constant paperwork and you get from one level to the next to the next and then they come back with something else. And dealing uh, with who, Lenny? Uh, the provincial government. So we have Western Health, I guess, here in Stephenville. Mm-hmm. So we, we had to take Nan to the hospital a couple of months ago because she had a fractured spine. And that, that put her on a program of home first. That took a little bit to kick in. And we found out um, just two days ago we were approved for more home care at a cost of $735 a month that would have to come out of my grandparents' pocket. Um, to do that... To appeal it, there was about 13 different items I had to go through in one day to get it sent in so they don't lose their home care support. So fortunately for us, we do have the support here, like myself, being able to do the paperwork. But if a senior were to live alone at this point, I think they just would have give up because there is no resources out there to help them through this process. And they just keep coming back with more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And I'm wondering... And it's concerning to me how many seniors are falling through the cracks and not getting the help and forced into long-term care when we do have a provincial government who says they want seniors to stay in their home longer, and it's actually cheaper for them to stay in their home longer. It's been a real counterintuitive play, hasn't it? Because they'll say one thing, like if we're talking about costs, and some seniors absolutely want to stay in their own home, and they can stay in their own home with some additional support, whether it be from a home care worker or otherwise. But when we get down to the paper warfare, the bureaucratic red tape, the overlap inside of government, which is a behemoth that doesn't really, it doesn't necessarily, it never works as seamlessly as and efficiently as it could. It becomes so frustrating. There's a reason why people give up. Yes, exactly. And, like, I, I know the frustrations that both of them have, and I'm the one doing all the work, but to ask them the question, ask them where this is, ask them where that is. A couple of nights ago, we had to go look for the deed to their house that they bought in the 80s. So you're going through mounds of paperwork, and you're trying to find things and get answers to things from years and years and years ago. And it, I'm just thinking there has to be an easier way. I don't know with the health accord, with the community team's approach, if they want to take that things will get better. But right now, I, I tell you, I've missed... I can't even count how many days of work I've missed this year. Thankfully, I have a great plan that allows me to miss work and not and not lose pay. But for families that would have nobody or wouldn't be in a situation where I am where I could take the sick time or the family leave to actually support these needs, there's a lot of seniors in this town, a lot of seniors across this province that are certainly falling through the cracks. And, I mean, the previous caller right on there, I believe his name was Sam, we hear that story every day at the council table, and we are trying our best. The town has implemented a, a, 
an incentive program to try to get more doctors and nurses into Stephen Mill. They've had a little bit of success, but there certainly could be more done, and we just need more collaboration within Western Health and provincial government to make that work. Yeah, we really do need to see communities and regions play an active role as opposed to it's simply the newly created Deputy Minister's position for the recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals. You know, look, even Belle Isle and then their grant seduction, they managed to woo back a doctor, even though it's for a limited locum, but I think communities do play a role here in presenting the, the, the best side of their area for recruitment of a doctor or an LPN or whatever other healthcare professional. So I think that's uh, important. There are some uh, recommendations inside the 57 in the Health Accord regarding the so-called frail elderly, not necessarily about accessibility per se, even though there's been new accessibility legislation put forward mm-hmm. in this province. But yes, there's got to be attention in the health health accord and the healthcare transition uh, regarding people like your mother and others who are facing these bureaucratic nightmares that are f- far too common. Uh, Lenny, uh, if you don't mind, I have another uh, Stephen-specific question for you, unless you'd like to say anything sure. else about this issue. No, no, go ahead, Patty. You were quoted in the news not so long ago when your council approved a $50,000 grant to the airport. And this was all surrounding the story about the $200 million proposal from the Diamond Group to buy the airport, keep operating as an airport, but building the drones and all the other things that were involved. You said, if I remember correctly, that you were confused with the grant. So was I. What's going on? Uh, right now, everything's been kind of silent. I the negotiations are still ongoing between the airport and the Diamond Group, from what I know, and, and things do look optimistic. I've said from the start I'm very cautiously optimistic, and at the end of the day, I just want the right answers for the taxpayers, as, as of all of council and our mayor does. We want what is best for the taxpayer who, for years and years and years, have sacrificed to keep the doors of the Steamville Airport Corporation open to get us to this point today where we do have a private enterprise looking at buying it and developing what is going to be a leading industry thing with drones. So I'm hoping, cautiously optimistic, that the people of Stephen Mill, our residents, are rewarded for their years and years of sacrifice and the tax dollars that have gone into this thing. Yeah, I mean, it, when it was first announced, it sounded like, oh man, this is going to be an incredible economic boon for your region, and specifically the town of Stephenville. Yeah. Uh, we can only hope that there is some ongoing negotiations and due diligence being finalized, and Mr. Diamond brings forward the plan and actually executes it. It'd be great. Uh, anything else this morning, Lenny? No, that's everything, Patty. Thank you for your time. Happy to have you on the show. Take good care. You too, sir. All right, bye-bye. It's Lenny Tiller. He's Stephenville Town Councillor. Well, uh, yeah, I'm going to try another one here. Line number two, Adam, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing great. You? Oh, excellent, buddy. Can you hear me all right? I'm on the speakerphone. Now down to the cabin. Uh, it's better if you take us off speaker. It sounds a bit hollow, but I can hear you. Okay. Uh, I, I don't have a computer on me now. i got something rolled up. I can't rip it off the top of my head, so I'll have to try to uh, read it out to you there if you got a few minutes. Go ahead. All right, so this is a post I made on uh, social media a few days ago, just uh, surrounding Baden Ord, and I guess my position on it. Uh, these are my own words. I'm not a representative for anyone. I'm just a regular oil and gas worker, so here we are. No reasonable person can argue that we don't require a transition plan. We do, and we will transition to another source of energy. We're in the stages of it now for certain. But that day isn't tomorrow, it's not next year, and it's not in the next decade. The technology to support it simply doesn't exist, not yet. A plan for transition based on illogical and impossible targets, or what I call hopes and dreams, is no better than having no plan at all. What impossible targets are you, are you referring to? Well, a, a lot of uh, a lot of what I'm seeing on social media, I guess from the uh, 
the fair opposition side of it all is that we, we stop all development right now, bear stop, and uh, start investing all of our time into renewables. Yeah, but I mean, that might be an aspiration as opposed to a target. You know, things like in the federal government's greenhouse gas emissions plan with trying to hit 40% less emissions uh, by 2035, uh, that's, and that's 20, 2005 levels. So, you know, targets are important for every piece of government policy, whether or not they're attainable. And given the fact that the past targets that the feds have set, we've never hit them. You know, we've never came close to Kyoto Protocol targets. I don't know if we're coming even remotely close to these new aspirational targets. But, you know, some specifics is what makes a plan. Now, they could be ridiculous. They might be pragmatic. They might be foolish. They might be spot on. I guess it remains to be seen the appetite that the general public also has for them. No, 100%, Patty, I agree with you there, 100%. Uh, target might not be the best word for that, but like I said, it's just something I wrote up yep. uh, late last week there. Uh, I, I agree, the targets that I've seen set out by the federal government, I wouldn't call them hopes and dreams. I would call them a, a good a good runway to, to what we're trying to set out again. It sounds like it to me. I mean, there's been lots of nonsense that comes out of uh, the federal liberals and things that really make no sense. But that plan, it's fairly comprehensive, and it actually includes a focus on low-carbon emission oil. So it's not like they have indicated through their plan that that's it, it's over, oil is dead, we're going to kill it. It doesn't sound like that to me at all. No, no, 100%. And I guess what that... Uh Say from my point of view, or the post that I put up, and there's a, there's quite a bit more to it there now. But uh, I, I wouldn't be. I'm not uh, focusing. We'll say on what the government has put out on their plan, plan. But what a lot of people that are in great opposition to oil and gas. What I've been hearing come from, I guess, the mass public on that side. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, I guess, like most things, especially when we're talking about political hot potatoes and controversial subjects, people will want what they want when they want it. And they'd be very polarized in their opinion. And that includes the future of oil and gas in this country. So, you know, it's always worth taking with a grain of salt when someone is either all in on oil or they're all out on oil because there's, there's generally speaking, middle ground that makes a bit more sense. And I think the same applies for whether it be Baden Nord or natural gas or hydrogen or mining or whatever the case may be. You know, it, nothing is as simple as it's perfect or it's useless. It's just nothing is that way. A hundred percent, Patty. I've got a couple of more words there if I, can, if I can run them through you. Quickly get them up before I get to the news. Go right ahead. No trouble, buddy. It's beyond tiring and beyond frustrating seeing groups lobby the government against an industry, which I'm proud to be a part of, to make decisions with far-reaching consequences regarding the process with which, by listening to many, they are severely uneducated and uninformed. I've worked in oil and gas throughout my career. I've also worked in the construction and hydroelectric utility sector. Offshore Newfoundland has the most stringent safety and environmental rules I've worked within, without a doubt. We work within them as, with pride as stewards of the environment and of industry. I'm an oil and gas worker. I value the environment. I value my home in Newfoundland and Labrador, and I'm proud of my industry, what we've accomplished and what we've yet to accomplish. I won't sit by and let misinformation and a lack of awareness dictate our future. Let's get some constructive conversation going and a real sustainable plan. Appreciate the time, Adam. Thanks for this. Thank you for the time, Patty. I appreciate it. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, time for the news. When we come back, the Shadow Minister for Finance. He's the PC member for Stephenville Port-au-Port. That's Tony Wakeham. He's in the queue. And then you. Don't go away. 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port-A-Port. He's the Shadow Minister for Finance. That's Tony Wakeham. Hi, Tony. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Before I get started, I just want to make a quick comment on the gentleman that called in relating to the nurse practitioner issue out our way. Like most areas in this province right now, we have experienced a significant shortage of family doctors in our region. And one of the options right now is to go see a nurse practitioner who stepped up and opened up a private clinic. Unfortunately, for people who go to that nurse practitioner, they have to pay out of their pocket. It's like a $35 charge. I don't believe that anyone in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador should have to pay to see a primary care provider. And the onus should be on Western Health and the government to find a way to work with those nurse practitioners who want to step up and fill the void right now to find a way that they can actually get paid through the health authority or some other mechanism without having to have individuals pay for that service. MCP. Straight up. I mean, if they're taking strain off the system, which those clinics absolutely are, and licensed practical nurses or nurse practitioners really fill an important gap. I don't know. if it, It's just money, I suppose. But they should be straight billed through MCP, like going to see the family doctor. Why not? Oh, absolutely. You know, we have a long-term, they have a long-term vision laid out by the health court. But we got, we need short-term solutions. We need immediate solutions. And I would think it's much better for the health system to have, to use these nurse practitioners in that way than have somebody go and spend 10 hours in the emergency department waiting to see a doctor in emergency. So clearly, this needs to be dealt with. And, and it's gone on for way too long. And we need government and the health authorities to step up and make this happen. The reason for my call today is, again, related to the cost of living. And uh, once again, we see a significant increase in home heat fuels going up. Uh, We're also on the eve of a carbon tax increase. And again, you know, the government introduced this five-step plan. The Premier in the House of Assembly, the Minister of Finance in the House of Assembly, have stated that it's not enough. And we agree. It's not enough. And so, but they have failed to come up with any other alternatives other than suggest, you know, wait for the budget. Well, the budget is next week. So we're going to be waiting, I guess, to hear, wait until next week to see what type of relief the government is prepared to provide to not only the seniors in our province and the people on fixed income, but to the middle class people in our province who are paying a significant price and increases in the cost of living. I just don't know, and maybe we've had this conversation in the past, governments get drunk on revenue streams. And when they do away with one, whether it be HST on home heating fuels, for instance, somehow, some way, they find another area to get that money back, to replace that lost revenue. And it might even come in additional borrowing. So it's a tricky piece of business. But we do know that individuals, families, organizations, municipalities, we need a break at some point. You know, the question of where does this stop is a really important one because the sky's the limit as far as I can tell regarding the prices of everything we touch, including all the fuels. Right. And I heard someone come on this morning and talk to you about electric vehicles. And that was part of their five-step plan. 
unfortunately, right now, the people that I talk to are, are the people who are worried about how they're going to come up with an extra $300 to fill up their oil tank. They're not the people who can afford to be talking about having a rebate to purchase an electric vehicle. That may be down the road for those people at higher incomes and can look at that type of thing. But people, there are a lot of people in our province who are concerned about day-to-day living, and that's, that's the real focus. And when you have an institute like the Fraser Institute come in and tell us that Newfoundland has some of the highest personal income tax rates in Canada on individuals and households that earn 100000 or more, how then are we as a province going to retain young professionals or even recruit young professionals? I mean, taxation is an important consideration for people when they decide which province they want to live in. And when you add our challenges and the shambles that our healthcare system are in, the fact that over 100,000 people don't have a family doctor, that just adds to it. So there's going to be tremendous pressure on government to step up and do something here. You know, it's fine to have people come home for a visit, but we need them to come home and stay. You know, thankfully, I guess the last Stats Canada report on population, we did see a marginal uptick in this province for the first time in a long time because this time last year we were the only province or territory in the country that saw population decrease. And, you know, people will continually say to me, you know, what? who cares how many people live here? Well, everybody should care. The fewer people that live here, especially when we talk about young families moving away, the decreased tax base, the aging demographic, the continued demand for services, my goodness, I mean, the formula is quite clear. We need people living here, working here, paying taxes here. Patty, the goal should be to have more people paying less tax, not less Always. people paying more tax. That ultimately has to be the goal. For sure. And I and I, I would hope that in the budget we will see some relief for the people of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador who have been suffering through this increased cost of living and not just simply, as you said, add additional revenue because we've been taking it in through higher oil prices or an increase in the carbon tax. Yeah, carbon tax tomorrow, two cents, so the 1.1 cent relief overnight uh, obliterated tomorrow, as we all know. Anyway, anything else you want to say this morning, Tony? Again, Betty, I call on government to immediately do something to talk about that home heat rebate program that was very successful. It needs to be re-implemented, and I look forward to seeing it in the budget. Appreciate your time this morning, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. It's Tony Wakeham, the Shadow Minister for Finance, the PC member for Stephenville. Port of Port. Okay, time for the final break of the morning. When we come back, it's Social Work Month. Cheryl Mallard, she's the chair of the NL College of Social Workers. She joins us, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the chair of the NL College of Social Workers. That's Cheryl Mallard. Good morning, Cheryl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. As you noted before the break, March is Social Work Month, and this year's national theme is in critical demand, social work is essential. So as March comes to a close, uh, I wanted to take an opportunity to acknowledge the work of the over 1,600 registered social workers throughout our province who have been working tirelessly day in and day out to support the people of the province. Social workers touch an awful lot of different arenas in in the province. I think people have a very narrow focus on what they think social workers do and who they are and where they work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think some of the more what I would call the traditional areas are probably better known, such as in, you know, healthcare. We see social workers in hospitals. 
working in mental health and addictions, long-term care, and of course, child protection is certainly well known. But there's so many diverse fields of practice, um, you know, certainly with some of our community-based organizations, a lot of them employ social workers, uh, religious organizations, indigenous organizations, in the correctional field, victim services field, research, policy, education, and I could go on. I often say you'll find social workers wherever you find people. It sounds about right. So what went on during the month? Because one thing as month, the month comes to a close here today, to talk about the fact that we're reflecting back on Social Work Month, what actually happened for social workers and for awareness campaigns or what have you? Right on. Well, we offered a number of continuing education events uh, throughout uh, the month that our members could take part of. And uh, we also acknowledged a couple of our a couple of our members uh, with awards throughout the month, the Pride of the Profession Award, and the CASW Distinguished Service Award. And um, you know, we do offer continuing education right throughout the year, Patty, not just during Social Work Month. Sure. But I guess yesterday when I uh, was listening to your show, I got a chance. I don't often get a chance to listen in, unfortunately, but I did get to listen in yesterday and got to hear uh, Minister John Abbott and Josh Schmeef speak for a little while on some of the food security issues. So, you know, I guess a big focus for us in social work is around social justice. And certainly we've been quite active around the social determinants of health and advocating for a living wage in this province. And I think over and over, you know, we're hearing key messages about the cost of living, how, you know, people who are living in poverty have certainly been even uh, more impacted over the past two years with the pandemic. And until we address, you know, um, a living wage and poverty issues, it's going to be really hard for people, I guess, to, you know, uh, make other kinds of changes in their lives and have better outcomes with respect to their health and other, you know, indicators of well-being. Not everybody sees the impact when we talk about the social determinants of health, who you are, where you are, your level of income, level of education, your overall health. You know, there's so much to the social determinants. You see what a lot, a lot of others don't. A lot of the really bad stories, I mean, I hear plenty of them here, but a lot of the folks living in these precarious uh, positions in life, you see the horror stories, you see what goes on, you see the real-life impact. What would you like people to know about this? the people you see, the people you deal with, and the stories they tell? Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, when people are struggling day in to day out to meet their basic needs, so where are they, you know, how are they going to feed themselves? How are they going to, you know, keep a roof over their head? How are they going to, you know, oftentimes people are making decisions on a month-to-month basis. Well, do I pay the light bill this month or do I get behind in my rent? You know, those kinds of things. It's really hard. I call that like kind of functioning in crisis mode. And it's really hard when people are trying to manage their day-to-day life in such a crisis way to think about, okay, getting a job or going back to school or participating in that training program or, you know, seeing a social worker or another type of helping professional around my mental health type of thing. So, you know, it's 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 not, if it was just as simple, Patty, as people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps to get out of poverty, we wouldn't have the issues that we have. I mean, there's so many systemic and structural issues that make it really difficult for people to move beyond their situation. What does it look like for a, a social worker with their workload case counts? 
Well, I think that varies depending on where they're to. And, and you know, the other thing around caseloads is numbers don't tell the true story, uh, you know, because it's more around the complexity of the issues of the people on the caseload type of thing. So, uh, I mean, we do know that there's certainly a lot of need in the system right now for for social workers. Uh, it's certainly a good time for students to be graduating with their social work degree and looking for employment. But I think it really, really depends, you know, on the jurisdiction. And of course, when you have um, positions, vacant positions, uh, well, that in turn impacts, you know, the workload for the social workers that, that are there. So, I mean, hopefully we can um, turn a corner to get more positions filled in the province, which in turn will help those who are currently working in the, the system have more manageable caseloads. Cheryl, uh, happy Social Work Month to you. I appreciate your time this Thank morning. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time for my call. Appreciate it so much. Anytime. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheryl Mallard, Chair of the NL College of Social Workers. Uh, let's see, line number three, Verna, you're on the air. Hi, yes. Good day, Patty. Good day to you. This is my first time calling. Welcome. And I'm calling about the liquid cars. Okay. Yes, the, uh, there was a lady on there a couple of days ago. She was saying about the, the motor or something in front. Of, uh, there'd be no big motor. So I was just wondering, what is the capacity weight of the car if there's no motor in like that? They're certainly lighter than a regular gas-powered vehicle. And she was really concerned with the safety. She says that, you know, with the engine in the front and the ability for all of that low to eat some of the impact. But then someone else shared with me some uh, research that was done regarding structural integrity and the safety of the vehicle. And they all passed the safety test with flying colors. Yes, uh well, uh, what I was concerned about is um, you, well, you probably heard about it too, like uh, cars or pickup trucks, especially. Like in the wintertime, they have like sandbags and everything in for more weight to keep more traction on the road. Right. So the cars is much lighter like that with our road conditions that we have. Don't you think that that car would be slipping and sliding all parts of the road? The people I know who have electric vehicles, they sing the praises, and they have no problems. Now there's a reduction in, in range during the winter. The cold is very different for on the battery than the, than the warm, warmer months, but they have no troubles. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, they're quite pleased with them, whether it be for traction, the ability to get around in the winter, the efficiency and the cost. So the guys I know who have them, they're thrilled with them. So that's all I know. I've never driven one, to be honest with you, so I don't know specifically on a personal front what they're like, but the guys I know who have them, they love them. Yes, well, like, they could be pretty, you know, good in the city, uh, like Cornerbrook or St. John's in the big, where the roads is always kept good, but you take them down the highways, especially out around the outports of Newfoundland, and... Uh, Another thing, too, like uh, if you were trouble with the electronics system with that car, with the, the electrical problem, I mean, I don't think there's any uh, uh, mechanics around here that would understand how to fix that. 
There are, yeah. Like even some of the dealerships that have more and more electric vehicles available, they have the technicians that can service them on site. Uh, the good folks over at the BMW dealership here close by my office, they've invited me to come over and uh, test some of their electric vehicles, which I'm going to do when I have some time. But they have the technicians who can uh, serve them right there. There's also one dealership that deals with strictly electric vehicles and hybrids, and they have the technicians as well. So as it becomes more popular, these things will increase. There'll be more technicians, more garages that can serve them, more charging stations. So all of that, I think, happens at the same time. And um, you take on the Great Northern Peninsula now or on the Burgio Highway. If you got caught in a really bad snowstorm, I mean, and that uh, car is only probably good for so long running on electricity. If you got caught in a snowstorm and you were there probably for hours, I mean, if that battery goes dead, you freeze. They say that the average electric vehicle battery is able to heat the car for 60 hours on a charge. So I think some of those concerns have been understood and addressed. Is it exactly the same type of function in the regular vehicles we drive today? No. Like, I can go a lot further on a tank of gas than I can on a full charge. But there's every indication to believe that those things will change and improve over time. The move to what they refer to as a solid-state battery will certainly improve some of those things, with, with range and flammability and the other concerns that are right now in present uh, with electric vehicles. So I think, Verna, will see them improve as the market appetite heats up for them. Yes, because like I said, uh, we were caught one time on the highway like on the way St. John's in the snowstorm. We, and we had to pull over. We couldn't go any further. And we were there for hours, like waiting for a plow to come through. And, you know, this is what I was concerned about. Like, you know, if this liquorial uh, car, like, uh, runs out of power, you know, it's going to be pretty hard on the people that's in it, sure. especially uh, in the winter months. Very quickly on weight. So apparently someone sent along very helpful information. The uh, electric vehicle average curb weight is approximately 200 kilograms greater than the average internal combustion engine automobile. How about that? That's a surprise to me. Uh, so I guess weight won't be a concern. We just cleared 12 o'clock, Verna, so you had the last word today. appreciate your time as a first-time caller. Okay, thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, we're out of time, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.